Hello, I'm Alex Rockeen, a barrister at Thurkin and Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really glad to be joined in the shed this morning by not one, but two guests. Um, we've got Brendan Kelly and we've got Mary Donnelly. And anyone who's ever listened to any of my uh, talks before, any of these before, will know I don't really like introducing um, the people I'm speaking to. I'd much prefer if they could introduce themselves. So, Brendan, over to you, please. Thank you very much, Alex. Um, so my name is Brendan Kelly. I'm a psychiatrist, a medical doctor, a psychiatrist working in Dublin, and I'm professor of psychiatry at Trinity College, Dublin. I work as a consultant psychiatrist at Tala University Hospital in Dublin. And along the way, I did a PhD in law, looking at mental health law and human rights in particular. And since 2018, I've been editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Law and Psychiatry. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thanks, Brendan. Mary. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, thanks for having us, Alex. Uh, so my name is Mary Donnelly. I am a professor of law in the School of Law in University College Cork. Uh, I've been working around issues of consent and capacity for uh, a long time now. And uh, I suppose in recent years, I have become more involved in public policy and uh, in particular in um, the development of the Assisted Decision-Making Capacity Act, which has been had a long gestation, but has finally come into force in Ireland in April of uh, 2023. Brilliant. Yes, it was a very long haul to get there. So it's, it's, it's and it's going to be fascinating to watch that pan out. Um, as much as I really would like to talk to both of you about, about that piece of legislation, I've got you here for a different reason, um, because you've just, a book has just been published, which you've edited, um, called The Routledge Handbook of Mental Health Law. I'm going to put my hand up immediately and say there's a chapter in it I've co-written, which I'm not really proposing to talk about, because what I'm really interested in is hearing your perspectives as the editor on various aspects of the book. So to sort of kick off, kick off the discussion. I wonder if one of you wants to just kind of give me an idea of well, where did this book come from? What's the genesis you know, and the need for a, a handbook of mental health law? I don't know, Brendan, do you maybe want to take that one? Yes, well, there are two answers to the to the question, really. Um, um, uh, Alex, and I'm just holding up a copy of the book here, um, The Routledge Handbook of Mental Health Law. Excellent. <laughs> I, can, I can hold up mine too, so we've all got our copies, so yes. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So I suppose two things. Um, I think we both felt there was a need for a volume like this that, um, you know, coordinated and brought together different strands and diverse kinds of thinking from around the world, particularly following the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and what that did or did not mean or do. Um, that was one side of it. But on a more prosaic level, perhaps, uh, Routledge emailed me and asked me, would I edit, um, uh, you know, the, the first uh, Routledge Handbook of Mental Health Law? And once I got that, I, you know, I immediately thought, well, you know, why isn't there one already? And it didn't seem like something that one could pass up, given the the importance of the area and its relevance. Yeah. Mary, I don't know if you've got any, I mean, what, one, one question in this, in this zone, and maybe Mary can take a first run at this, is I mean, mental health law, I mean, the very name mental health law, um, I mean, especially in light, for instance, of the CRPD might be thought to be a kind of almost anachronistic concept. So, you know, what what is mental health law and why do we need a, a handbook about it? I, I suppose we, I think we both probably feel that mental health law still has a meaning. 
Mm -hmm. uh, but we would also suggest that the meaning of that has changed quite considerably. So one of the, the features, I think, of this book is we take a, and we say this in the introduction, we take a very broad view of what constitutes mental health law, which we essentially see as law in all its guises as it impacts on the lives of people with mental illness. And again, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more on, on why we choose uh, the term mental illness uh, in a moment. So we certainly have a much broader interpretation of mental health law than the traditional, if you take, for example, the Mental Health Act in, in England and Wales, the Mental Health Act in Ireland, which is a very, very narrow view of mental health law. So that's really reflected in the kinds of people or the kinds of contributions we sought. So we have um, chapters on employment equality, we have chapters on social exclusion, we have chapters on family, we have chapters on um, genetics. Uh, so we have a whole array of chapters which wouldn't fit within the kind of ordinary understanding or the traditional understanding of mental health law. But I, I think, and, and Brendan can come in on this, I think we, we do feel it's important that the lived experiences um, of people with mental illness are, don't get lost in a a world which is so busy, not um, which which kind of ignores, I suppose, those experiences. There is something about mental health law, um, something unique uh, about people's experiences and their interactions with the law, and we wanted to capture that. So that's why we. We've stuck with that understanding uh, and, and also, I suppose, why we use the term mental illness. Uh, I, I just quickly read out uh, our understanding of mental illness um, and then uh, Brendan might, might want to speak further about that. We understand it to mean a complex and changeable condition where a person's state of mind affects their thinking, perceiving, emotion or judgment and seriously impairs their mental function. So that's the understanding of mental illness that we, we work with. I should say, and then I'll stop, um, mm -hmm. that's our understanding uh, as editors, but we don't impose that understanding on our contributors and our contributors use all sorts of different language and have different kinds of understanding. So we, we, we took a very deliberate decision not to impose our views, but that would be our understanding of mental illness. At least that's what we say in the introduction. Over to you, Brendan. Thank, thanks, Mary. So, yeah, no, Brendan, Brendan, I just your observations on on on, uh, on the language because I mean, so I mean, everywhere language is important, but this zone, there's feels like there's a particular power to language and a particular power to kind of people when challenging the use of that language. Yes, and uh, you know, we we included a diversity of terminologies, a diversity of perspectives about this, and uh, you know, language language differs so much. Even you know, different languages. Uh, the yeah. book is written in English. And for many terms, there are not direct translations into other languages and meaning shifts very, very quickly when you start um, translating across. So um, I think the issue of language, it does map onto the issue of shared concepts as well. And the question of can there be an internationally valid, applicable document of any description that will mean something in very different linguistic heritage, different legal cultures, different social systems, and is the attempt to create a sort of international set of standards almost impossible from language and in terms of ideas across countries and cultures. And so we need to tolerate or encourage a great deal of diversity of language concepts. And we try to 
do that throughout the book. But I guess the, the very existence of mental health legislation um, is is questioned, you know, dedicated legislation. Um, and in many senses, one would like to live in a world where such legislation was not needed. Um, but I come at this from two different perspectives. I'm very interested in history. And I know from the history of uh, what we'll call mental illness, that prior to mental health legislation and prior to big mental hospitals, people with mental illness were still excluded, were still neglected and still lived extremely difficult, short lives um, prior to the advent of, if you like, public mental health law. There were things going on privately. And the, on the other hand, I'm a practicing clinician. And I see in our emergency department the kinds of problems that crop up um, and law is often involved. Law, mental health law and other seems to play a disproportionate part in the lives of many people with mental illness, what we'll call mental illness. And I guess that's one of the motivations for me is simply what I see happening in the world around me rather than coming at it from an ideological base. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I mean, one, no, thank you, thank you, thank you for those two perspectives, or I mean, you, your two perspectives, Brendan, and, and then the, the additional, the, the original perspective from Mary on this. I mean, just before we sort of move to the, the, the wider range of the book, I mean, we're getting there, but just kind of linguistically, or one last kind of linguistic thing to sort of just grapple with is this idea of um, lived experience and and writing from a lived experience or speaking from a lived experience and I just sort of your your editorial reflections on 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 that in terms of the in terms of the book um I don't know Mary do you want to do you want to take that one as a, as a as a starter I suppose we uh we're fortunate to have uh chapters from a lived experience from from a variety of 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 experiences some of which are self-declared um and uh, that's that's wonderful. I think we would have liked more, um, to to be honest. Um, but we also, I suppose, and I, and I'll I'll speak to or I'll I'll give over to Brendan on this. Um, we also recognise that there are people who don't necessarily um, identify as providing lived experience. Uh, again lived experience either personally or in terms of family or other engagements uh, because of course people have lived experience in a whole variety of 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 ways so uh we we fully recognize the importance of reflecting lived experiences but also the sheer variety of lived experiences um and, and brendan i might hand over to you on that Yes, yes. I mean, it's extremely helpful to have uh, people with sort of declared lived experience, particularly of mental health legislation, maybe if that's what we're looking at particularly here. Um, but also, you know, virtually everybody has some kind of lived experience of either a mental health problem uh, or indeed a mental illness or a family member affected or a friend or, you know, being bereaved by suicide, for example. Pretty much everyone has some sort of a connection. It is useful uh, when people want to explore that openly and explicitly. That is that is really, you know, that is doing a public service, in my view. Uh, however, it is also the case that that is not for everybody. So we certainly didn't place uh, any obligation on contributors to declare personal uh, connections in, in this manner at all. 
Um, and yet, yet, yet we know the statistics tell us that, you know, almost everyone will have some sort of connection and, and quite a number of people personal experience of some kind of distress along these lines. Yeah, no. And I think it's I think there's something very interesting uh, and, and, and difficult sometimes about the idea that one is only allowed to speak using certain voices or if you are coming from a certain standpoint and you're only allowed to represent it, it can get quite narrowing. So I think, I mean, one of the, to me, one of the really interesting things about the book is just this massive range of perspectives. And I think it's really interesting also then to get the, that sense that some of them might well be other perspectives informing without necessarily being explicit. explicit. So just give me a sense of, you know, what you were, I mean, the, the book is huge, we've seen. We've all held, held up our copies. So what was it you were sort of hoping to encompass? We've sort of touched on this, but just sort of give us a walkthrough of what you were hoping to encompass, um, I mean, sort of geographically, but also kind of thematically in terms of this this smogers board of mental health law. Now, Brendan, do you want to take that one for, for, for a starter? Yes, I guess there are two kinds of themes. There were ones we felt we absolutely could not leave out. So, for example, mental health law is traditionally associated with admission without consent and treatment without consent. So we felt those issues needed to be covered, ideally both from quite legal perspectives and maybe quite clinical ones as well about law and practice, what what happens. Um, So there were those traditional themes. But we were very keen from the word go to cover those other areas of life where law impacts on people with mental illness in a way that it does not impact on other people. And um, so there was that area that we had some ideas about uh, and we, you know, we, we, we emailed people and, but we remained flexible because as we selected the chapters, a couple of things were in our heads. We wanted these themes covered, the core ones and some new ones. We also wanted reasonable geographical spread around the world so as to try and bring together different traditions and perspectives and initiatives and try and learn from each other. Um, and we also, I guess, we, we you know, we, we kept an eye on other things as we went along. Um, the, the the general mix of disciplinary backgrounds, uh, the, the gender mix as well, um, and other matters. So it was an iterative process. It was a little fuzzy at the edges at times, you know, as we, we you know, people came up with ideas and we, we said, sure, that's great. Or maybe that's already mm-hmm. covered. Um, so we had some general ideas and it, it took shape uh, over a period of time. Mary, I don't know if you've got anything you want to, to flick um, in there. Yep. I suppose uh, geographical spread was really important and trying to have contributions from countries that, that aren't so often represented in discussions. So there, there have been a couple of, of uh, books which have had a good range, but very often discussions tend to to focus on a particular kind of of a particular kind of model and and a particular approach um so we were really keen so we were we were delighted we have sort of contributions really from from all all the continents which is which is marvelous um and and I think that's that's a really enriching uh, aspect of the book is the fact that we have that diversity that geographical diversity and and I do think it is very important particularly in light of the the CRPD that that we are very conscious of our of having conversations with jurisdictions with very different kinds of backgrounds to mental health law uh, and again we've seen often that I suppose in a sense you might describe the anglo model uh, or the 
whatever Anglo-American model imposed on jurisdictions. Uh, and there's an awful lot to learn from those jurisdictions. Um, so I think that's something I'm really pleased that we managed to, 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 to achieve. And then, as Brendan said, that diversity in terms of disciplines and then also in terms of perspectives and beyond the traditional view of mental health law. Yeah, no, and I have to say you have done, if I may so say, a massive favour for people in terms of making sure you and both got the representation from, as it were, those countries living with um, the legacy of Anglo-colonialism in terms of their mental health systems and then how that, I mean, that's really important to get those perspectives, but also um, for those people who don't speak Spanish um, or um, the other languages spoken in, in, in Latin America to have actually perspectives there because those are countries which are so often spoken about are uh, here is the vanguard of crpd compatibility this is what's happening it's all perfect as it were and it's really helpful and really important to have as it were frontline perspectives from this is actually what it is like for people who don't speak spanish so for, from my perspective because one reads and hears so much about it to get that kind of you know this is actually of course it's the author's perspectives but at least they are authors located there and then you know for, for non-native um or for, for non for those who are limited in their linguistic ability to get that sense so um which kind of then leads me on in a way to thinking were there things which surprised you both as you were you know reading the chapters coming in i mean not so much about the sort of you know the use of footnotes but more kind of things which are surprising you in terms of challenges which were thrown up or or themes or ideas or things you went gosh i hadn't that you know that one really just had never crossed my radar i don't know if either of you have sort of thoughts that you want i was really interested in the diversity of responses to the crpd because for some people it was absolutely central and some people adopted it as their their normative framework. And then for others, it was, uh, I, I won't say peripheral, but, but not the central driving force for their understanding of, you know, the aspect of mental health law they they identified. So I thought that was 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 very interesting that those different responses or the different impacts in the sense of the CRPD across different uh, jurisdictions. That was one uh, interesting aspect. But that, but then also people, how, how much they bought into the vision of mental health laws broader. I mean, that wasn't a surprise because we kind of encouraged them to, but, but how much people did really get that vision that you need to look beyond the traditional which of course creates a much fuzzier space but but the people recognize that i think was was less a surprise but more something which was i think very positive yeah uh, thank you brendan yes well I, I certainly i agree with i agree with uh that the crpd you know is threaded through the book through many chapters and it is interesting um, the uh, the tendency on the one hand to take every single word of the convention as as being absolute, um, like stating as if it's performative, as if it creates reality that is therefore unquestionable from that point onward, um, as if mentioning something as a right stops the conversation or completes the conversation or finishes the conversation rather than starting the conversation, but also. 
that this this absolutism, if I can call it that, is selectively applied to certain uh, articles which pertain to admission and treatment without consent. But if we applied the same absolute status to other articles to do with positive rights, the world would be a very different place. And uh, so we were certainly encouraging um, that uh, sort, you know, placing greater emphasis on rights to access various you know, social services and rehabilitation and care and treatment and so forth. Um, and if a similar uh, degree of uh, enthusiasm and indeed, if, if I might almost say fundamentalism, was applied to those positive uh, rights or those positive articles of the CRPD, may, you know, maybe shifting in that direction might move us from conversations about language, which might never end, and more towards positive action that would mean something in the world. So, if I had a bias through the editing, it was very much towards, um, you know, giving voice to that that side of the argument, the positive rights and the parts of the CRPD that maybe aren't spoken about and hold enormous power if 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 we pursue them with the with the attention to detail that's happening for certain other articles. Yes, no, absolutely, and it, it it's um, it it's really noticeable how it's really no, that that definitely comes through through the different chapters of the book, and it is. And, and I think it's also, I, I, again, going back to the kind of um, non-ideological aspect of the edit editing we were talking about earlier, I think it is the other thing which really strikes me when you read the different chapters is, is there is no through line imposed as to this is how must, one must think, which actually then allows a real flourishing of very interesting responses, you know, very, and, and you know, somewhere people, it actually, you know, this, you know, we have to move towards and then somewhere it's actually, well, actually, we, we've sort of, that debate hasn't really, you know, we've been arguing about this for 10 years. Can we just kind of, as it were, move on? I mean, there's you know, a couple of chapters ago, well, this debate, as you say, this debate about language is just never going to get anywhere. You know, what what can we actually concretely do? So it's, it's in some ways, I suspect it might be thought this is quite a timely book for this to, but this book to have come out, if you see what I mean, because there's been long enough for people to say, and to the extent they need to say it in a, academic way with references and footnotes they can say well actually there's certain aspects of this debate which really haven't got very far um as opposed to just asserting and then and then the counter argument being well you haven't tried hard enough if you see what i mean so i mean i, I was wondering whether there are bits we sort of touched on this but i just want to allow you really to kind of to to, to make sure we've, we've covered this are there bits you would really like you know, in the next edition, I know you just put this one to bed and you're like, oh, thank God, <laughs> the look on Brendan's face thinking, no, thank you. But, you know, if there were to be another edition, are there bits where you can, you know, where you would go, actually, you know what, I really wish we could have had X, Y and Z, you know, because this is so comprehensive. You can always think of things which, you know, might be more on your kind of wish list. I don't know, Brendan, you're looking enthusiastic. Is there anything on your wish list? Yeah, well, uh, one of the chapters I particularly like, and I, I know I shouldn't do this, but I will, is the chapter by Tanya Gurgel and toward the end. And uh, Tanya expands the canvas a little bit more uh, by pointing to some issues that are not normally addressed, usually addressed. And perhaps the most interesting one for me is the um, this idea of assisted dying or mm -hmm. physician assisted suicide or whatever term might be used in a given jurisdiction, uh, being provided for mental illness alone. And um, Tanya looks at this in her chapter. Um, I, I would like to see, um, you know, maybe a, a longer and um, maybe a, a deeper examination of this, particularly uh, from people with lived experience of mental illness who might at times experience suicidality. 
And I think that is one area where lived experience of mental illness could provide an extremely, um, an, a really searing, uh, a really piercing account of that development and what it would mean in terms of lived experience if this was a possibility. And this might counterbalance, you know, some of the, oh, I don't know, more distant, maybe more academic um, discussions we often hear about um, uh, assisted dying um, for mental illness alone or for unbearable suffering alone. So I think in a new edition, I'd be really interested in um, a, a chapter looking quite deeply at that, particularly from the perspective of lived experience. And of course, in the new, I'll, I'll, I'll ask Mary the same question in a second, whether, you know, on your wish list, as well, while I give you a chance to think about that. Of course, in the new edition, depending on when it is, you're going to have whatever Canada has done, because they they have that the, the legislature, as we're talking in November 2023, the legislation to enable you know, essentially unbearable suffering in the presence of mental illness alone, you know, is about to go live. And I think it is. It's, I mean, certainly having recently been working in that space, seeing some of the debates which are suddenly happening where people are going, gosh, this, I mean, this is some profoundly existential questions about appropriate responses to unbearable suffering. I mean, it's it's really big, big ticket yeah. stuff. So I'm, I'm so glad that Tanya touches on it. And yeah. as it happens, it's the last chapter in the book. So it's actually a wonderful kind of, wonderful, perhaps rather too enthusiastic in the sense that it's such a difficult topic, but it's really important to have that seed planted. Of, and as you say, it, that's a, an area where unless one's listening, the idea of nothing about us without us is is almost about as important as it can get. Oh, I, you know, Alex, it could not be more important. And, and this is based on a conversation I had the other day with someone who said he, he was very well, but he said that he had been suicidal in the past and that it terrified him to the core that were he to be so again and someone were to assess his capacity, if, if, if we use that term, and decide he had it, that he could be assisted in ending his life. And it was just something about the, the way he, he just did this. He, he, ju he just he just said, it terrifies me. And, and um, you know, you know that, the, that that this could be a possibility where he were he to develop that mental state again, that he would be assisted. And um, and I thought that was such a powerful perspective from you know, this lived experience of this severe or extreme mental state, this, if we call it mental illness, unbearable suffering. Um, I thought that was extremely powerful. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, that's something where, yeah, it's almost existential, um, but, but but it needs to be rooted in existence. <laughs> Mary, I don't know whether you had any, any anything. I, I do. Um, and and I, I agree with Brendan. Uh, I, I I think that it was, it was wonderful to, to, to see that coming in and I think it, it's definitely something we could develop. Um, I would like a chapter on uh, a, a specific chapter on advanced directives and the role of advanced planning. Uh, I think that that would be uh, helpful. Um, you, you, you know, it, it pops in in different does, places. Yeah. But uh, I, I think at the other side, <laughs> now my brain is already starting to think about it. I'd like more on social exclusion and, and ways of addressing it. Terry Carney is a very nice, uh, very, I think, useful chapter, but I would really like to see more on the, that broader understanding of how law stops people with mental illness achieving recovery or achieving, um, you know, decent lives. Um, and, 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 and so I'd like to see more on that. And then the final thing I would like a bit more on 
is uh, more empirical grounding, more empirical work. Um, because I think that's absolutely essential. Brendan spoke about the different um, different languages uh, and things can look, you know, you can look into a jurisdiction and you, it can look marvellous. The legislation can look all terribly pretty on, on and I'd really like to see us uh, with more grounded studies uh, as to how particularly reforming legislation is a working what's working, what's not working. So I'd, I'd, I'd like to get a good empirical wash through um, the next uh, edition. And I, I, I and in that, I think that raises that fantastically important, interesting question, what do you mean by working? Yeah. Like, what is, our, what is our metric for working? And I think that's the thing I'm always interested in. And we're, we're going to sadly have to draw to a close because I'd love to talk to you both all day. But I think we'll have to draw to a close in a minute. But one of the things I always think is fantastically interesting in the reforming space is, well, what are we good. <laughs> how do you know whether you've achieved what it is you want to achieve? Because that then rather gives an idea of, well, you know, how legitimate is it to be setting out on this journey? And then how can we work out where we're going? But um, thank you so much for the self-flagellation just in the last couple of minutes in terms of things you would have liked to have covered. But I think it's it's there's so much in this book um, and it's such a rich jumping. I mean, it's such a rich survey of where we are and set of you know, interesting suggestions in different places about where we could be going in different ways. And it's just, it's I mean, it's 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 brilliant. And I'm saying that. As one of the authors, um, with I've deliberately not mentioned my chapters. I'm making no observations about it, other than to thank you, a very much for having asked me to co-write it um, with Catherine Reedy, and then b more to the point, just for immediate purposes, thank you very much indeed uh, for taking the time today uh, to talk about the book. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alex.